So if I were to ask you to pick two or three qualities that you look for in a founder, uh, what would you say those are? One is coachability. You know, it takes a village across all aspects of the business and being able to uh, receive feedback, not just from uh, advisors, peers, colleagues, but also from the market itself, right, is, is critical to success. Coachability then drives adaptability and then the opportunity to remain flexible. So I think coachability is, is, is very key to that because, yeah, I, I think I think foundationally as a founder, you need to be, uh, you know, constant learner, constant student to not just others, but to the market itself and, and to your customers. Right. Podcast. Hey, Mehdi. Thank you very much for having me. Glad to be here. Alex, for our audience, can you tell a little bit about yourself and your crypto journey thus far? Yeah, sure. So my, um, my, my crypto journey started back in 2012 or so. Um, I was first introduced to Bitcoin through my escapades of running a RuneScape bot farm in college. And so I uh, was a prolific uh, bot farmer and um, would sell my accounts to different entities around the world and had uh, some buyers uh, buy my accounts through Bitcoin. Um, And I didn't really, you know, I think it was like 20 bucks at the time. So it was like one Bitcoin per account type model. Um, So that was like my first foray into the space. And uh, I think it just became, I, it persisted kind of like that, um, you know, and, and I didn't really take it very uh, seriously until um, uh, until more so 2014, but I studied applied math in undergrad. And this is when this was all happening. And um, I was introduced to a lot of kind of core encryption primitives, right, that we all are familiar with today um, from, from the SHA, you know, 256 to Grobner basis, which, you know, serves as a very foundational uh, primitive to uh, zero knowledge tech, right? So I was introduced to all of these concepts in, in some of my classes and um, in my independent research uh, through my degree. Um, and so there was kind of this alignment. And uh, and as I read through the white paper, this this uh, this growing interest from my perspective um, as it aligns to academic uh, my academic career. And then in 2014, um, Coinbase uh, was a partner. Coinbase Commerce was a partner with Dell. And I was an intern at Dell as, as a BIOS engineer, uh, platform engineer. And I remember uh, when it was announced and they were like, through Coinbase, we will start accepting Bitcoin to purchase our products. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, I have a ton of this stuff. Wow, like this thing's going, you know, enterprise. So um, so let's buy some computers. Let's buy some monitors. Anyway, so this that was like this bubble in my mind of, you know, crypto going mainstream decade later, here we are. So, um, but over the years I, uh, stayed in web two, um, was a product manager engineer at several different web two companies, um, started my own digital health company. Uh, so really zero to one operator, but kind of stayed within the crypto realms, uh, personally as an investor. Um, and then in 2021 or so, um, I decided to go back to grad school to really review and, uh, understand uh, a lot of the more technical uh, side of crypto systems, distributed systems, 
So I studied computer engineering, got my MBA from Cornell. Um, and, and through that was uh, very focused on going into crypto institutionally. So joined um, a few different funds as a venture partner uh, and then uh, joined Shima uh, at about a year and a half now ago, end of 2021 and uh, beginning of 2022 um, as the head of research uh, and on the investment team. And uh, Shima Capital is an early stage pre-seed seed fund, generalist fund that covers a number of different you know, investments across different categories, DeFi to infrastructure um, and, and non-gaming consumer, uh, as well as gaming. Uh, I've really focused on more infrastructure uh, and DeFi um, and kind of uh, uh, agnostic to the stack, right? So application layer protocols down to the network layer. Um, and, and so uh, we, uh, we, we were very kind of uh, focused on obviously supporting our portfolio companies. And my role as head of research is bifurcated between, uh, you know, supporting our portfolio companies in a number of different ways uh, to also supporting our investment theses um, in key categories. Awesome, Alex. Amazing background. Uh, and since you mentioned that you cover infrastructure and DeFi, one of the topics that have lately been on, in, on top of my mind, and I guess a lot of crypto folks out there, has been restaking. So how do you kind of see the space of restaking? What are some of your, th some of your thoughts there? Do you think it's a winner-take market? I'd love to get the complete download of how you're kind of viewing this vertical. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, restaking is is uh, is an incredibly hot topic, um, uh, and and rightfully so. I, I think it's a it's a very very powerful um, new paradigm. Um, and, and why is that? Right? Be, you know, re. Um, I'll try not to be an echo chamber because I know you had Sri Ram on the podcast and a lot of other great guests uh, that also touch on this. But you know, in my mind. Um, just to kind of go through the overview and whatnot, uh, restaking right is extending the trust guarantees um, provided by token economic security uh, beyond the virtual machine to more applications, right? So middleware, uh, AVS, active validator services. Um, traditionally, applications built uh, the core logic in virtual machine um, uh, as a smart contract. Right. And so there are a lot of limitations, costs, uh, features, inability to call external resources, dependency on uh, middleware. Right. Uh, I.e. oracles and bridges um, that are now introduced beyond the VM level. Uh, but that dependency creates a lot of risk uh, because now you are dependent on the security guarantees associated to that middleware. Right. Depending on if it's an oracle or if it's a bridge for assets. And, and so restaking is this idea where you're able to leverage the stake assets of the underlying network, right? To extend the tokenomic economic security of general staking um, to, uh, you know, associated and proof of stake consensus to more complicated trust-based applications. And so now instead of, you know, a, um, an attack vector limited to say 10, 10 million uh, dollars of a particular token, um, you now have the trust guarantee of the entire underlying network. Um, and so, so, so this new uh, paradigm is, ha has massive ramifications, right? Across um, how middleware is built out, the social consensus associated to the, you know, 
the, the semantics around um, validators supporting specific middleware and projects and applications, um, which I think is less talked about, um, but obviously gaining more traction given Vitalik's uh, latest post with the risk associated to social, social consensus. Um, and, uh, and, and really the extensibility and composability around security has never kind of been visited before. And I think restaking introduces that. So, um, so that's kind of the overview. I mean, re restaking, um, has, so, you know, we're very familiar with, uh, Eigenlayer and, and several other projects, Exocore, um, that are, you know, is addressing restaking and, in, in kind of their own form, uh, factor. But um, I, I just I just find that, uh, you know, very similar to uh, new primitives like like AMMs, for instance, right, with Bancor's introduction of it and then derivatives uh, with Uniswap and, and its growth over the years. Um, we are seeing a new paradigm associated to infrastructure development um, and uh, addressing a very core pillar associated to blockchain tech, which is safety and security, uh, particularly around assets. Uh, and as we are familiar with it, assets in the form of monetary value. Yeah, so, I, so I'm going to double click on this uh, for, for a moment. So in terms of the way I kind of think about the restaking eva evaluation is um, we first started with Cosmos interchain staking. Then we he we headed towards, let's say, Eigenlayer and Babylon chain, where, where you can basically take securities from uh, other chains. Do you, do you think the next step would be somehow trying to tap into the multi-chain world where securities somehow, or at least the validators, somehow across chains can be pulled in? Uh, do you think that's the next direction we are heading towards? And relating to this, uh, similar to liquid staking, uh, do you think what happened with Lido, do you think this is sort of a winner-take-all market? Or do you think it, it's more like an oligopolistic structure where there'll be few big winners and then the rest of them will be copy paste. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I absolutely believe in a cross chain pooled security world. Um, you know, we, we are very, uh, we are strong believers in, in my, per, you know, personally, uh, am a strong believer in, um, a cross chain multi-chain thesis. And, and so, why, why, you know, only stick to one chain and the idea of restaking when, you know, we have a universe of staked assets that we can leverage to enforce and enable security. Um, so, and, and so with that model, right, we have this idea where um, you'd be able to leverage staked assets on one chain um, to support active validator services or middleware projects and um, Oracle's bridges uh, on, on another um, in a very, um, you know, composable way. And so, you know, if you, I think that I'm not sure what the numbers are today, as of today, but historically, the amount of staked assets on other chains, right, total fifty-two uh, percent, fifty-two yeah, percent, yeah, more than, than yeah. yes, thank you, fifty-two percent are greater than that of ETH. And so, you know, you're leaving, you're leaving fifty-two percent of staked assets on the table. And, and this goes, you know, and this includes ETH, right? So it's not, you know, I'm not excluding ETH in this equation here where, um, you know, of all staked assets, uh, there isn't this need to just stick to, to one. And, and it's not just ETH, right? Like if BNB, you know, if there was an eigenlayer for BNB chain, for instance, um, you know, there's this question of why isn't there an, you know, a, 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 an equivalent pooled security for Asana um, or any proof of stake. 
right chain. But then the next step is an aggregation layer, very similar to, you know, like a one inch um, of, of pooled security in which you're able to aggregate cross chain uh, and route it um, to support um, everyone. So and all entities. So absolutely. Um, you know, we, I think, uh, we, uh, we've been working on, on, you know, on something uh, like that actually. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know if, if I should release the alpha here on this podcast, but, uh, happy to, um, but, uh, but yeah, we've been working on that idea, uh, because we're very bullish on, you know, the paradigms of restaking, um, as well as, uh, you know, the, the cross chain and, and multi-chain thesis. When it so comes to, okay, so your second question. Um, cause I don't want to, I don't want to ignore it. Um, so winner, winner, so winner take all. So, um, yeah, so I think that there are risks that are currently kind of, uh, being discovered and are un, un, uh, uncovered, um, within this realm of, uh, uh, of, of, you know, being able to restake already restaked assets. Uh, there's also, um, this, uh, idea where maybe the short-term sustainability associated to a restaked pooled security model is um, is uh, is at risk, right? Because, like, for instance, um, the value capture of restaking might decrease over time because you know one of the core propositions related to restaking is the idea where um, these this middleware uh, entities no longer have to bootstrap their own security and launch their own token. Um, but there is an incentive for these middleware solutions as they grow to eventually have their own token, right? For a number of reasons. Um, and so does restaking then lose its viability over time. And then this then creates a smaller market for other players to come in. Um, so I would argue that that's one area that you have to obviously take into consideration, but um, as I mentioned very briefly earlier, uh, there is this idea of social consensus, right, associated to um, uh, and, 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 and this social uh, semantics associated to restaking that goes beyond the technical security guarantees, uh, which is very important. Um, and so but but I don't see a world in which there is going to be um, a significant number, uh, maybe an oligopoly, but, you know, most likely a monopoly of sorts when it comes to restaking, um, because if if it becomes more saturated, then you essentially degrade the guarantees associated to the core proposition in the first place. Yep, that's a fascinating thought. Um, w w one thing I was looking at was Lido's market dominance, right? Like they have 75% of the market share at the moment, but initially they were having issues so I think the one barrier of entry here is trust, like user trusting their Ethereum with the external party. And I think that that is the competitive advantage here because if if you can't trust your Ethereum with somebody else, uh, it, it takes a lot of time to develop that trust. So so for because of that reasoning, uh, my, my, my rational conclusion was maybe we are heading towards a monopoly or a duopoly, something along those structures just because what we saw with Lido, that there is this affinity with your Ethereum uh, that, that you do not want to kind of lose or experiment with. Yeah, I, I can I can see that happening. And, and it's not just right within the stake narrative. I think there are multiple narratives that follow that, I would argue, even, even on the MEV side, right? You know, with Flashbots, for instance, in PBS. 
I think, you know, MEV boost accounts for 90% of block building. Yeah, let's let's touch upon MEV. Uh, this is one of the areas I, I also wanted to uh, pick your brains on. Like, how do you kind of see the MEV landscape? I think Shima also invested in Fastlane, which is a MEV protocol on Polygon. How do you kind of see the market structure across different blockchains? Like Solana has a different architecture. Uh, Ethereum has a different architecture. Yep. In the future, Sui has a different architecture. So what's your, what's your take on this? And let's say when you do invest in MEV, like what's the thesis there? Is it like a proxy for getting a cheaper valuation for L1s? Like what's the thought process, a mental model uh, when, yeah. when, when you guys invest in MEV? Yeah, so um, so MEV, MEV, okay, so, MEV, uh, so, so I'm gonna take a step back very quickly. My, my positioning on MEV versus my as a as a consumer and as a participant of blockchain applications and networks is very different from the venture backability of mev projects both from the mitigation and the extraction side um so let's start with the overview right so mev i think is just i mean mev isn't going anywhere it's an inherent characteristic uh of the design and just general operation of decentralized blockchain networks it exists because it's financially lucrative, right? For participants to extract value from transaction ordering and manipulation. And that's just, that's just like, um, that, that's just part of the, uh, the underlying foundations associated to, as I mentioned, blockchain networks. And so as long as there is an opportunity for profit through strategic transaction sequencing, um, market incentive will continue to drive, right? This pursuit of MEV, especially, um, when the market participants involved with MEV play such a uh, role, uh, like important role in like the sustainability of the network itself. Um, and, and there's like this cat and mouse game and, and it is this gamified, you know, transaction uh, semantic that, that, uh, that is very powerful, that drives participation. Um, you know, MEV is considered kind of like this millennium prize problem, right? So in math, you have a millennium prize problems that I think it's like a million dollar prize if, if it's solvable um, for blockchains and crypto, because there's like this, there's like this um, this ebb and flow associated to the benefits and trade-offs associated with MEV. Now, toxic MEV is is categorically different um, because you know from in in the form of like front running, sandwich attacks, etc. Um, that isn't necessarily MEV itself because I like I mentioned, you know, MEV does have uh, potential uh, benefits. Um, so, for instance, um, you know, many DeFi projects rely on uh, on economically rational actors to ensure uh, usefulness, stability of the protocol. And so like an arbitrage on a DEX really ensures that users get the best correct prices for their tokens, right? And lending protocols might rely on speedy liquidation uh, liquidations when borrowers fall b b below collateralization ratios, right? And so um, without uh, rational searchers, right, that seek to fix um, these economic inefficiencies and take advantage of these protocols' um, economic inef inefficiencies, then these DeFi protocols essentially are missing out on this opportunity cost. So I think that that's very important, and I think that that you know is this MEV that I think is ideal, and I think that there are many uh, you know that there is a project uh, focused on 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 transaction semantics, um, and uh, that and which I can talk about in a bit. But um, this is a really great opportunity. I don't think MEV is going anywhere for that reason. But toxic MEV is a different thing. Now, when it comes to your question, 
I find this world of investing in MEV, both in the mitigation and extraction side, to be very complex and difficult to underwrite. Um, so from an investment thesis perspective, um, we generally have uh, not invested in many MEV projects. Um, and uh, so Fastlane is an exception. Um, we, you know, we, there is, uh, we, we want, you know, we, 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 we love the team. Um, we think that there's a really unique opportunity with Polygon. Uh, and so, uh, so we have some exposure uh, there, but more generally, uh, it's been very difficult for us to uh, develop conviction and crystallize the opportunity, especially from you know this venture backable mentality and mandate to alignment to our mandate of a thesis uh, to back MEV projects. Um, now, there is this tertiary world around PBS, right? Decentralized sequencers. Um, this, uh, you know, and, 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 and PBS uh, enablement, uh, but also transaction semantic improvement that we are very interested in. And so I think that that I think there are tertiary uh, categories that we are very willing to invest in because then it actually improves um, uh, the, the, the overall infrastructure associated with blockchains beyond MEV. Uh, but specifically investing in MEV uh, as you know, for the for the aforementioned reasons um, has been less of a priority. Uh, I also want to zoom out and give a quick plug to uh, some of our listeners who who invest in NFTs and gaming. They might not realize that MEV also impacts it. So when I was doing research on MEV, I found out there's a reason why whitelist of NFTs happen. There's a reason why reveal happen after the minting process. And the underlining reason for that is MEV, because let's say if, if all of these things do not happen in a sequence, somebody can front run you and, and basically uh, make, I, I just front run you, back run you and, and make and make money. So it does impact yeah. our lives, even though some of the NFT gamers might not realize this, but if you're living on blockchain, it definitely impacts in, in various ways. Um, yeah, that's right. Sorry. So maybe I can clarify as well, right? So that's a really, really great point. Um, you know, as, as it stands now, transactions are both for, uh, you know, transactions are, 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 are smart contract messages, right? Um, that do not have to be this Alice Bob sent, you know, Alice and Bob has this monetary uh, contract and they're sending assets back and forth to each other. You know, the signing and the engagement of games, NFTs, right, is, is a part of the semantics of, of transactions. As it stands now, transactions uh, overall, right, as you mentioned, are falling prey um, to to uh, liquidations, slippage, right, stolen arbitrage, hijacked attacks, um, in the form of uh, in, in the form of toxic uh, MEV, and so, um, and so, and so, you know, there are two fundamental properties associated to transactions, uh, which is uh, animicity. And determinacy um, with these two properties, um, you know, it doesn't matter if it's you know you wanting to swap Ethereum for USDC on Uniswap. Um, those two properties persist across any type of transaction, including gaming and NFTs. So, uh, good point to bring up, Mehdi. Thank you. One thing that has been very hot lately, um, even though the interest rates are high, um, AI has been really, really hot. Uh, some might even argue that it's going through its own hype cycle at the moment. Um, so I also want to discuss how do you see the intersection of AI and crypto? How do you kind of see convergence? 
I, I recently had Kyle Sumani on, on my podcast and basically he was like, the only thing that matches at this intersection is decentralized compute. Uh, given it's an interesting topic, I also want to know your thesis and your download on how you kind of view this intersection. Yeah, do we have, you know, a few hours? Um, so the the intersection is very unique, but I think it's very important for, you know, uh, your, your listeners and everyone in the industry to be very pragmatic about that intersection. Um, you know, I, I think AI is is one of is is one of those things that will uh, be persistent in every industry. Uh, right. From from banking to agriculture, every every aspect of our lives will be impacted by AI, and I think most people will agree with that statement. And and crypto is no different. Um, and so if we were to talk about the, you know, AI to crypto intersection, that's inevitable, right? There's going to be enhancements to the assets that we create, right? In games through AI, it's going to be it's going to impact the bots that we use both for automation as well as for um, for for trading uh, for MEV, right? It's there. There's going to be massive ramifications of AI to crypto. But I think what most people within the space care about more is the other way, right? How does crypto play a role or can crypto play a role in AI? Um, and I would agree that decentralized compute is a very unique uh, use case. I'll get to that in a moment, but at a very high level, I strongly believe that the relationship between crypto and AI sits in this relationship that we can kind of um, uh, compare to with crypto, uh, uh, excuse me, cybersecurity and the internet. So cybersecurity was a field study, you know, a field of study that really grew and, pers and, and, and it has persisted um, and, and it will be a continually like exponential growth uh, vertical. Uh, be because of the internet, because of um, the internet of things, right? Distribution of of devices and the importance of our digital world. Crypto has the opportunity to become the cybersecurity of AI in the sense that there are mechanisms that blockchains enable, such as data sovereignty, such as uh, transparency, you know, encryption methods that are tertiary to uh, crypto that allows for AI to be um, more self-regulated, right? And, and that's, that's a very, very important point because I think, you know, there's this fear of AI kind of taking off and, um, and, and, and having extreme negative ramifications associated to uh, what it can do to our lives. And I think that blockchain is a mitigant to that, similar to how cybersecurity is a mitigant to many actions that we take in the digital world. Um, so, so I think that, that that and how it manifests is very opportunistic for the space. Um, specific examples, I think, you know, we as an industry need to continue flushing out because as I mentioned, we need to be very pragmatic about what's actually possible with that mitigation. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about ZKML, um, but, uh, and, you know, and, and putting proofs on chain uh, or weights in architecture of models on chain uh, so that there's, uh, you know, model authenticity and model integrity. Well, to be completely frank, the assumptions associated to ZKML working, which I think is a fantastic use case for, you know, this intersection of crypto being um, a safety and security regulator for AI, um, has very non-trivial assumptions, 
right? You need to assume that you're able to uh, convert a model, you know, architecture or, or weights into a polynomial that then can be converted into, you know, a proof. Um, and, and, and that is a very complex thing. And in order to simplify it, you might be at risk of, uh, you know, change in tweaking the model in ways that uh, originally didn't need to be tweaked uh, in order for it to fit into a polynomial, for instance. And so the, these non-trivial assumptions that many people are, uh, are ignoring uh, in, in light of what ZKML can enable, um, uh, I would argue should not be ignored. And even though it is a very utopian type vision, um, we're, we're still, you know, a few years, if not uh, more uh, away from actualizing that. Um, but this is all, I mean, I digress. This is all to say, I think that there is a very unique opportunity for crypto to play a role in um, safety and safety and security with AI. Um, and then with decentralized compute, which I would argue is another second great use case, um, is fascinating, right? Obviously, there is this uh, pipeline of processes associated to, um, to AI, right? You have the training of the data, you have the uh, uh, the computation associated to model generation, then you have the inference calls and et cetera, et cetera. So on the compute side, um, you know, we live in a very centralized compute world with uh, many, you know, key players, large key uh, uh, incumbents um, having significant market share. And so with a decentralized compute model, uh, you, you break that, you break that wide open. Uh, and the only, the only way to establish consensus, the only way to, uh, ensure, um, the censorship resistant, uh, decentralized, composable, immutable type approach is obviously through blockchain tech. So, uh, from the computation side, we have many projects that are addressing this, um, in very unique ways. Um, and this also, you know, is happening not just with AI, uh, model generation, but also rendering, right? So, you know, GPU, uh, graphics rendering. Um, so render network is an example of that Jensen on the AI side and, and a lot of them achieve the same outcomes, right? Which is how do we decentralize a massive amounts of compute, um, uh, that enables the stakeholders involved with that compute and opening it up for more stakeholders to scale properly, right? To then achieve this outcome of, uh, of either AI or rendering or, um, or, or even ZK proof generation, right? On the hardware acceleration side. So, um, I think that that's a really great use case. Um, and then also kind of is, I think, a good segue into the deep end narrative uh, and decentralized um, uh, 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 so, hardware. So, Alex, narrative. before we touch this, before we touch this, I, I want to double click on the compute part. So so yeah. Render has been there since 2017, 18. Again, big fan. I've also, like, in previous live, wrote an article about it. Um, why do you think it hasn't taken off? It has been a few years they have been able to establish a marketplace, a, a two-sided marketplace. Uh, wh wh why do you reckon we are still struggling with this, even though the AI narrative might be fresh right now because of the metaverse narrative, uh, the, the metaverse rendering and all of that stuff was like has been there for last couple of years. What do you think has been the bottleneck there in terms of these projects uh, taking off? I know Render has been there for, since 2018. Uh, Akash was there, Golem, like near like during ICOs, uh, what, what do you think is the main issues here? Like why some of these um, startups kind of have, have that issue in terms of scaling? I think it's a mix of two things. I think one, there are technical limitations associated to syncing um, data. Um, and the actual compute across multiple, you know, distributed networks. So th this is like a peer to peer network limitation, 
um, that many, you know, th- this vision of peer-to-peer networking, distributed networking has uh, has existed for quite some time, but the technical limitations to ensuring that that achieves the same level of parity to, um, to you know, a centralized server approach um, just hasn't hasn't been able to keep up. Like that parity does not exist quite yet. Um, that That's one. So just pure technical execution. Uh, and, and this is very important because why would I sacrifice kind of the key component, right, that is important and, and the key uh, feature that is important to the outcomes that I mentioned, right, say like training an AI model um, at the sacrifice of decentralization. And I don't think that the value of decentralization and not and I'm not talking about, you know, um, the Nakamoto coefficient, I'm talking about the quant- the uh, the value in a quantified form right? Whether it's revenue, whether it's profitability of decentralization is very hard to calculate and we haven't been able to do so. And so it's kind of like this, you know, unicorns and, and, uh, you know, the, the, this like rainbows and, and, and butterfly type mentality when it comes to decentralization. And it's like, we can't really attribute a number. Um, whereas with actual performance, actual scalability with centralized entities, um, it doesn't matter, right? And so, since we're since there's a big question mark there, and I would say this goes for many things, even with restaking, for instance, um, question mark around quantifying the value of decentralization, it impacts the choices of adopting decentralized X, specifically compute, when you know you have to sacrifice late, you know, the, the latency issues and general limitations associated peer to peer networking um, that will never compete, or not never, but is you know has yet to compete with the centralized counterparts. So that's one, uh, you know, there, and then there's like this uh, introduction of edge compute, which I think uh, is, is also a nascent technology, but, um, and, and, you know, and, and localized. So the idea of edge compute, right, is bringing computation and data storage closer to the location where it's needed. That thesis um, will help enable the adoption of decentralized compute. But because it's also nascent, I see, I see that, you know, this being uh, very early. The second reason why I don't think adoption has really uh, come to fruition with decentralized compute is uh, token design. So I think I think the incentives associated, right? Because you're already, like I mentioned, you're already sacrificing performance, and so uh, and, and general costs, right? So then, how are you able to mitigate that with the proper incentives for participants? Well, most token designs uh, that I've seen. Uh, in the space, uh, when it comes to decentralized compute, are not conducive to uh, to, to driving acquisition of of, of computational resources, um, and, and so I think that there needs that needs to be addressed, right? And and I I do not know what that may look like, but but as it stands now, um, it just hasn't worked out. And so I think that those two those two core components, right? So as a recap. One, uh, just general technical limitations and lack of parity to, in, you know, centralized incumbents, and then token design is why decentralized compute hasn't taken off. Yeah, agreed on all, all of the above. Yeah, just one case in point regarding render. So, so, so with render, there's sync and faucet, but there's unlimited sync and unlimited faucet. There is no burn mechanics yet, and on top of yeah. that, there's a SaaS model for priority compute. So when you have that kind of a conflict of interest where equity holders wants to make money and token holders also kind of want some value accrual, then you have that tussle that basically doesn't lead to 
either either good price performance or or adoption. Another mm-hmm. interesting thing regarding render, just like a quick comment here for some of our folks that are interested in this, the valuation is actually like astronomically absurd. So when I was doing this calculation of, in terms of render used multiplied by the network value, so network value over here could be proxied by circulating supply out there, and what's the render used on an annual basis? It's trading at 720x. So it does have a fair unfair advantage relative mm. to a. And relative to newcomers in in Web three, but still something I, I think latency, as you, as you might highlight it, could have been an issue, uh, and I think a major issue, despite having this unfair advantage, they they haven't been able to capture the market. Yeah. So definitely right. very very fascinating, and I think now we can segue into deep end, which is again very very heavily focused on token token designs and token token. Yes, design. absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, not much comment on Deepin. Um, I mean, uh, what what is? Let's see, what what is it? What does it stand for again? Um, I think it's like decentralized. I've seen multiple multiple versions. I've seen Deepin. Yeah, yeah, yeah I've seen Deepin as well. Yeah, yeah. So you know, so so I guess you know, I guess we can classify it decentralized physical infrastructure networks. Um, Yes. So back to your back to the segue here. Token design, I think, plays equal amount um, uh, of importance, and, and and there are many different categories within this, right? So physical infrastructure, uh, you know, I just think Internet of Things. Think about you know uh, your helium, uh, your helium network, uh, networks of the world, uh, in, in which you're able to leverage hardware, right, to extract uh, or to ingest some data, uh, and that data is uh, immediately, um, you know ingested in a distributed manner. And then there are token incentives associated to accessing that data or leveraging that data for some use case. In Helium's case, it's bandwidth. Um, you know, you have Hive Mapper, right, which is distributed networking associated to uh, images um, and, and street views, right? Um, so, so there are different use cases associated how you can leverage hardware um, to then drive uh, distributed data, uh, data flows. I think that that's I think that that's very very important. Like that that is crucial. I think to the growth of crypto, um, and I and I understand why you know this this is a narrative that uh, many people are excited about. Very similar to crypto and AI, though, I think uh, we have to address some. You know, I'm al- I'm always coming in and throwing a wet blanket on these narratives, but you you have to you have to assess you have to understand a few things. Hardware is hard, right? Like. Building these distributed networks and these token models around hardware um, even more difficult, and and so the development of these uh, one right uh, where it has the the functionality associated to being um, uh, associated to some decentralized or some blockchain network um, requires your typical hardware supply chain. Um, I think with helium there was like this massive backlog of being able to have and you know enough helium boxes. Right to distribute to to people. This was peak like 2021, 2022, um, and, and I remember that it was you know they're they're experiencing the same supply chain issues that any hardware company has to go through. So I think that that's you know something to be to to take into consideration. Um, and then two, I think you know we don't want to beat a dead horse here, but token the token models associated to deepen networks um, are kind of going through like the the growing pains of gaming token design in my mind. Um, and, and so like, no, I don't think, I don't think, I think that there needs to be a unique model associated to specifically, you know, decentralized physical infrastructure that 
doesn't necessarily follow that of DeFi or follow that of uh, you know general middleware infrastructure projects that we see today. Um, and you know, some could argue like, is a token even needed, right? Can't we access you know some of these networks and the data associated to these networks with a stablecoin? Maybe, and you follow a SaaS model, maybe. And so I think all of that we're kind of going through an ex- uh, exploratory phase. But I just want to re- I want I want to reiterate to listeners here uh, and viewers that this is the future. And why is this the future? Because when we think about you know decentralization and centralization, uh, the arguments associated with it, uh, you know, majority of our nodes are run on AWS. They're run you know on centralized servers and whatnot. Um, how really decentralized is the blockchain? Uh, as many uh, futters would like to point out in in media. Um, but even beyond that, right? When we think about data sovereignty and unique uh, decentralized identity which are all associated to this idea of DPIN in my mind. Um, It's important for the data associated to information being collected, the data being collected by these hardware networks um, to be immediately on chain versus having a copy in a centralized server somewhere and then getting put on chain through, you know, an Oracle or something. Um, And so immediate, uh, you know, direct source generation of decentralized data is a very and will be a more powerful thing that many people don't realize today. But, you know, for instance, health, healthcare data, right? Like if deep, like, you know, healthcare wearables is deep in and so or falls under this category, right? So when you're ingesting, you know, healthcare data from your Apple Watch or your Whoop or your Fitbit and, you know, they're storing the data in a centralized server, uh, but then you know, you may be like, oh, I own this health data. So let's, you know, throw it onto Ocean Protocol and into, you know, IPFS uh, storage or something. Doesn't matter, right? There's a copy that exists out where that in the centralized world. And so when you think about decentralized data from specifically real world assets, such as healthcare, um, the only way to fix this is through decentralized hardware or decentralized physical infrastructure. Um, and, and I think that the future uh, when it comes to our the, digi- the digitization associated to our existence, DPIN will play an absolutely crucial role in that. Alex, any uh, project Shima might have invested in that you can disclose that that is also kind of playing along this theme? We, we've invested in... Um, in kind of infrastructure associated to uh, deep, so so picnic is one. So picnic is is more is more decentralized compute. So you know after the fact, after you know after uh, the data has been ingested, uh, for instance. Um, but but not like yeah, specifically deep in investments. No, we we haven't. I think that there are still a number of we're, we're still a bit. I don't want to say too early because I think um, you know our role as um, you know, venture capitalists is to, uh, to, you know, back strong founders in early, uh, you know, early, uh, narratives. Um, but it's been very difficult for us to, uh, to, to, you know, develop, um, and, and crystallize the opportunity associated to deep end projects, um, at this point in time. So we actually have, uh, we, we I've been keeping tabs on, on deep end, Um, but there hasn't been a project that, uh, has been a good opportunity for us to participate in. 
Um, but you know, just just to list some, right? So I mentioned Hive Mapper, um, Helium, and, and a lot of these projects, you know, have either been around for a while, and uh, you know, there's still a lot in development. Um, but then some new ones, so Natix um, uh, is one that comes to mind. Uh, is build is, is tapping into um, uh, to imaging, so very similar to Hive Mapper, uh, but imaging for you know for for autonomous vehicles, right? And and like being able to generate that data. Which one was that? How it trains. Was that Demo? Uh, Natix, um, N A T I X. Yeah, and um, and sympathy for these founders yeah. as well. Like, um, so they are trying to open up a marketplace without trying to set up a supply side. So that is a very difficult task. And they, yeah. they're also playing in a play field, which is uh, which is kind of nascent and, and uh, God knows what will happen. So I think a lot of sympathy for them. Uh, typically with marketplaces, yeah. we have the control of the supply side and that's how you bootstrap. But in these these types of network, it's, it's kind of tough. So definitely sympathies with them. And I kind of agree there is timing risk, but intellectually it's very interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so Alex, I, I know we are on, we still have a few minutes left, but I, I definitely wanted to pick your brain on this. Uh, the debate between modular architecture versus monolithic architecture when it comes to blockchain. So which camp do you reside on? Uh, I, I know there is a big push now to, towards kind of seeing the world as completely modular and just having thousands of roll-ups or rollers as a service. What, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, um, so I believe, I believe module, I believe a modular future is inevitable, but you know, the modular versus monolithic debate, uh, people love to treat it as binary, you know, um, but that's not the case. Um, I believe in a very hybrid, <laughs> and this is, this isn't like an answer to get away from the question, but you know, in, in practice, right? Like. Um, I, you know, I believe in this hybrid um, monolithic modular uh, uh, infrastructure, uh, very similar to kind of like, uh, you know, you, you have your Microsoft and Intel's versus just Apple, right? Um, and then it's also this vertical integration, this, this idea of vertical integration for the space. So what really drives vertical integration, right? So if you look at a Tesla company that has done really well with vertically integrating, it there, there are uh, massive benefits associated to supply chain, right? Um, they like to control, excuse me, and um, and and focus on cost reduction, um, as focus on customer service and end user engagement, um, number of things. And these are important things to note because when you think about a company like Celestia, for instance, vert- vertically integrating uh, within the modular ecosystem, you don't necessarily have the same tangible benefits. Right. Because, uh, well, one, you know, obviously different companies. But if you think about the benefits associated vertically integrating, um, I would argue that there is there is there is potentially a future where you have multiple projects and organizations focused on one specific aspect of the blockchain stack instead of Celestia, which is doing both, uh, I believe, the application execution as well as consensus. Right. And I'm sure they're going to introduce a few more things. But vertically integrating a modular uh, a modular offering is kind of like antagonistic in a way. Um, and so I, I believe in a modular future where uh, there will be a focus on specific elements of the stack. Uh, uh, so like, you know, an eigen DA 
Uh, so separate DA, the projects only focus on data availability and there, there's a market, uh, for that and competition and drive for innovation. There's settlement, right? And so we obviously see that today with the different, uh, rollups and whatnot, uh, or excuse me, the different, um, the chains. Um, and then, and then when it comes to, uh, uh, execution, right? You have your, your different rollups and whatnot. So, um, so, so I think that we're sorry. I, I, I believe in this now. Um, the monolithic piece and why it's more of a hybrid is because the value accrual. So where does the value accrue in modular stacks? Uh, there's this huge roll up as a service narrative, right? And it's like, oh, we want to be able to create the next 1 million uh, roll ups very easily, right? Any organization, any entity will have their own roll up. That's very powerful. But when it comes to the value accrual associated to uh, those roll ups in the network, it, it all kind of trickles down right to the execution there. And, and that's why I'm thinking about, there is this element of monolith, uh, monolithic properties that even in a very modular world uh, will persist because, uh, be, because of the engagement associated to uh, the execution layer kind of taking, taking, the, uh, taking the value accrual. Um, but I think, I think it's more of this, uh, I think there's more of this buildup associated to how modular enables that to be more efficient. Um, but I think that skews more towards this modular thesis versus monolithic generally. So I just want to dive in, into this just a bit more. So yeah. would you say, let's say you, you have parallel execution with, let's say, SWE, Fuel, Aptos, Solana, and these L1s who, are, who have these parallel execution and, and can do a lot of TPS, there will be theoretically L2s being built on top of them, uh, and 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 within the, that stack, there will be somebody that will be providing data availability. Is that the uh, future you kind of envision? Like, do you think that will be something uh, that that can also happen? Yes, yes. So crypto itself is modular, right? And I think that we need to tap into that that opportunity space um, across the across all layers of the stack. So I, I would love to see monolithic chains adopting modular, like monolithic chain. Uh, how, how do I put this? Um, all monolithic chains have the opportunity to be modular. Right. And, and I think that that future needs to exist. So, so there's a, a narrative that gets pushed regarding composability. Do you think, even with the, this type of architecture, you can still have best of both worlds. Like you can have your app-specific rollups or generic rollups, but you can also have some sort of composability at the base layer. Or do you think the composability will become interoperability, where there'll be communication between these rollups as well as the main chain? Like, how how would you envision composability in that type of architecture? Hmm. I think I think I think it's tough to say now. Um, so, so inter, the interoperability. Yeah. So I think if I understand correctly, right, like the existence of this modular world uh, requires interoperability. Um, in my mind. Or I mean, I don't, I don't see any other way, right? I mean, I think, I think interoperability and in, in the be and the ability to to be interoperable um, is a characteristic of a modular world, or else 
you know, when you, when you, when you, uh, not, not just from like the parts of the blockchain stack, right. You know, because then you can, you know, you can extract one and, and create, um, create a, a, uh, an optimized blockchain, for instance, across different use cases. But, but because you're able to package, you know, different pieces of the stack and, to, and create your own optimized chain, um, you're going to have many of those. And I don't see a world where there's going to be uh, a lack, uh, th there's going to be fragmentation across those chains. Like, uh, because then it really defeats the purpose, right? Each chain should be its own modular component as well to the overarching ecosystem. Similar to how, similar to the restaking thing, right? I don't see this value associated to staking one particular asset just for that particular network's security, right? Um, it's all about accessing uh, liquidity associated to others and the liquidity then drives security, uh, similar to how in the modular world, uh, it'll drive application development, um, security, uh, and, and general um, scalability. So Alex, uh, because, because of the time, I'll, I'll shift topics a bit more. I, I want to get into the philosophy of the investing uh, and, and touch base on that. Um, so when you guys invest like at Shima in terms of early stage investing, what do you think is more critical, uh, the market structure or the qualities of the founder? I, I know we touched upon this bit earlier as well regarding deep, deep in, but in terms of focus, uh, what would you say has been Pareto optimal for Shima and, and, and yourself when you guys have been investing? So, so market quality, structure. is that what you said? Market structure. Market structure or the qualities of the founder. So in TLDR, focusing on the market more or focusing on the founder more, let's say, if you guys are debating on IC. Oh, yeah. So this is not just crypto, right? I, I would... I would always make a bet on a bullish market with average founders than a dying market or a, you know, depressed market with really strong founders, right? Because that's, that's what drives the opportunity associated with the project and company. Always hundred percent of the time. Excellent. Um, At least you're honest. <laughs> I think that's, I think that, I think that's the principle of, I think, well, no, I think that's, a, that's, a, that's the nature of general uh, markets, right? Economic markets, micro, macroeconomics, um, and, and, and supply demand, right? Associated how it impacts your company. Um, and so, so, but that's not to say, right? You know, not, not a binary thing though. Uh, you know, founder, founder strength, strength of founders, quality of founders is, uh, of absolute paramount, um, can't be ignored. It, you know, that's, this 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 is uh having to choose between one or the other is obviously very difficult um so i want to i want to obviously caveat my answer with that but if i had to pick one the market for sure yep. let's say let's say the market is good in terms of your experience uh let's say when you guys are evaluating founder what are some of the to optimal qualities that have consistently generated alpha so if i were to ask you to pick two or three qualities that you look for in a founder uh, what would you say those are? One is coachability. You know, it takes a village um, across all aspects of the business and being able to uh, receive feedback, not just from uh, advisors, peers, colleagues, but also from the market itself, right, is, is critical to success. 
um, coachability then drives adaptability and then the ability, you know, the, the, um, the opportunity to remain flexible. Um, so, so I think coachability is, is, is very key to that because yeah, I, I think, I think foundationally as a founder, you need to be, uh, you know, constant learner, constant student to not just others, but to the market itself and, and to your customers. Right. Um, another, another one I think many people touch upon is, um, is intestinal fortitude. And I say that, especially in this market, because every day creates a new problem uh, or new opportunities. And those, and usually those opportunities and those consequences are not always positive. They're usually negative, right? Hacks on one day, um, you know, social consensus issues on another day, um, uh, developments in, uh, in the tech that may render your roadmap obsolete. So how do you, you know, get up? How do you, how do you take it on the chin and continue fighting and building your company? It's very easy to give up, especially in a very dynamic market like crypto and Web3. And, um, you know, being able to sustain the cycles, being able to sustain the macro environment, regulation, uh, you know, it's and being uh, dealing with customers, dealing with technical risks, all of that. Um, and the and, and so the intestinal fortitude, I think, is an association and is a metric associated to their ability to withstand the conflicts associated to building a company within the space. And then third. Um, and notice how many of these are not hard skills, right? It's it's very important that, uh, you know, the hard skills can be learned and hard skills can can always be developed. But I think some of these soft, more soft skills um, uh, areas are 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 absolutely critical. Um, and, and then, and then I think I think third uh, for me um, is integrity. I think this I think this is a pretty obvious one, but um, integrity you know impacts every aspect of uh, your life, uh, particularly when you're running a company and the lives of many others within your company, and so. Uh, I think that goes without saying. And for me, I think personally, uh, that's a very important thing uh, because if you are able to act with professional integrity, um, you generally have uh, positive serendipity on your side, generally. Uh, and obviously a number of other things. But I think that that's just important for me in terms of character development and, and, and people that um, I like to back. Yeah, definitely appreciate your thoughts here, Alex. Um, so regarding the second part, fortitude, like how do you go about measuring that? Like, are, are there any specific questions you ask? Like, how do you kind of measure that, or how do you kind of evaluate that fortitude? So when I'm asking questions, uh, I, I get a lot back from asking really stupid questions that I already know the answer to, right? To questions that um, that really uh, require them to think and be genuinely honest with me about. Um, and I think just through that, you can kind of like start stacking up the, 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 the data points associated to, uh, not just fortitude, but all three of them, but specifically around fortitude, I think, um, yeah, it's, it's a very difficult thing to assess, but, um, you know, you ask about what keeps them up at night. I think this is a very common question. Um, and what, how they answer that is is like this spectrum between it keeps me up at night, but I'm not worried about it. And this is how I'm going to solve for it versus just telling me what keeps them up at night. 
you know, and what they're looking for in an investor. So I'll give you an example, right? Oh, like I'm, you know, what keeps me up at the night is, is fundraising. Let's just say, um, that's not a good example, but like, let's see, um, you know, you know, so, uh, you know, there's the, the slashing mechanisms associated to what we're building out that keeps me up because, you know, that's a very, you know, big technical problem. Um, new primitive, we need to address it, uh, and, and design it ourselves. Um, and, and it's one of those things with, depending on how they answer, they'll either be very confident in, in knowing that this is a problem that they need to address. And if it, they don't, it completely eradicates their company. Um, or like this nervous, right. Uh, response of, oh yeah. Uh, you know, we, re we really need like helpful people or we really need, um, uh, to do this. And, and like, it's a major risk. I think like confidence and and how they answer and versus like the answer itself um, is all very indicative. Um, we also do we also do uh, conduct uh, personality tests, uh, actually. So so you know much more unique questions that um, are specifically tailored to highlight intentional fortitude and many other characteristics. Um, uh, so we created a unique test uh, grabbing from a lot of existing tests. So like. Um, uh, uh, personality you i think is one from uh like the bridgewater um ray dalio uh uh template um there's also um uh, a few others that uh that escapes me off the top of my mind so so connecting those tests uh can can provide uh interesting data points obviously we have to be careful of the bias right knowing that they are taking a test as part of a fundraising event but i think those biases will be shown and validated right throughout the diligence process with questions um that's a really good question. I, you know, I, I think, I think it's, it's definitely more art than science. And so I'm just trying to picture all the, com, you know, conversations that I've had that has, you know, resulted in a founder that has had strong intestinal fortitude, but it's, it's, it's much more of a, you know, pattern recognition art. Um, and, and, you know, being in the space and then, you know, I come from, you know, being a founder myself. So I think that that also helps. Uh, in no, terms definitely, of it's a yeah. This was an incredible answer. Like this was very fascinating. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this as well. Um, so, Alex, I promise I am. I'm in the last segment of the podcast. This is no problem. More let's, fun. Let's do it. More fun. Yeah, and, and less intense and and more fun. Um, so, in terms of the rapid fire, my first question would be: If you were building something today, what would it be? Rapid fire. I'll do my best to rapid fire, but this is this is very very important. I would. Okay, I'm going to give you two answers. One is, I'm going to build something with Web three principles and Web two execution. Why do I say this? Because I know I know the entire industry talks about user experience, talks about security, talks about on ramp you know problems, talks about user adoption issues because of these you know lack of use, good user experience and UI. That. We talk about it, but we are one percent away, or like we haven't. We've we've only covered the tip of the iceberg in terms of what we actually need to do to execute. Massive, 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 massive problem. And I don't care about adopting a billion users. I I really don't. I don't care about the next million. I care about an incremental process of driving parity associated to blockchain applications with acute utility function associated to these applications that match up with our web two existing solutions. And, uh, and so I, I'll stop there, but that, that is, that is something that I want to build is just anything with that, with that um, ethos in mind. 
Web3 principles, right? You want you want to obviously tap into the Web3 uh, rails and primitives and advantages, but Web2 execution of really acute product development, this insatiable attention to customers and ignoring you know speculation that never exists in Web2 products associated to the monetary assets underlying your protocol. Okay. And then in terms of something tangible, probably like a middleware e-commerce solution. I think e-commerce is an industry that has really interesting use cases when it comes to crypto, but no one's really touching that space. Um, so, so e-commerce enablement um, and or and or uh, and or uh, something something with this new um, standard six five five one ERC six five five one non fungible token bound accounts. Um, I actually have a, a project idea associated to this specifically um, that you know maybe one day I will get to to build out. But um, but yeah, that's probably something. So you know, I think I think um, token bound accounts like NFTs associated wallets and identity. Uh, fascinating. Love that space. Think it's going to play a major role in the growth of the industry. Yep. Um, I definitely agree with 6551. Uh, definitely experimenting with that as well. And you kind of see this organically happening in multiple chain. Like you, you see that happening with Ethereum, but Sui also has a very composable way of creating those NFTs. So I, I think there will be multiple interesting things coming yep. from, from similar, similar ideas. Uh, if I were to create a NFT wallet, I think one interesting idea would be a soulbound token owning everything, so so I do not lose my NFT in the process of maybe doing some DJ and stuff. Um, right. <laughs> so so Alex, uh, again, this is not financial advice. Nothing here is financial advice. Let's say I gave you um, ten million dollars. Maybe it's magic internet money. You got airdrop these ten million dollars to invest in liquid crypto market. What will you buy, or what, or, or it could be multiple purchases? But yeah, what will you buy? Hmm. Uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, in terms of distribution, I'll take 80%. 80% of the 10 million into those two asset classes, to those assets. 1 million for a diverse portfolio of alts, and then another million for just straight memes, meme coins. Meme, meme coins have been the most positive EV thing in like the last few months, right? So I can't, I can't ignore that. Uh, so yeah, that's probably how I distribute it. But Bitcoin, Ethereum, I, you know, we didn't really talk about my Bitcoin the or, you know, my Bitcoin thesis and, and just the general opportunity of Bitcoin. But um, I think, you know, the elephant in the room with the industry is how do we tap into Bitcoin liquidity? Um, ordinals, obviously, like there's there's been these attempts with, um, you know, kind of evolving the Bitcoin ecosystem and community, which is fascinating to me. Uh, and obviously, with regulation, uh, that's top of mind. And uh, the having coming up in 2024, right, in which fees become uh, fees uh, and distribution of rewards to miners become uh, uh, reduced. Um, how that impacts. Um, the incentives and, and how the infrastructure associated to Bitcoin will evolve is, I think, a really interesting opportunity. So, um, so yeah, so just some more additional alpha there. But yeah, I think I think with 
uh, you know, with, with 10 million, yeah, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and then 2 million of alts and meme coins. Excellent. I think you'll be the first guest we had that wanted me to like, like double tap on, on Bitcoin. Typically, the guests we usually have is like, let's, let's talk about Ethereum, Solana, other <laughs> altcoins. But, but, but yeah, definitely BRC20 caught me off guard as well. And I, I think like sometimes when you're zoomed into the market so much in, in, in a particular vertical, like you do miss out on opportunity. Funny story, my aunt, she invested in Pepe and she was early on Pe- and in BRC20 <laughs> and she made way more wow. money than, um, um, than the oh, stuff your, I was get doing. Get your aunt on the show. Yes, yes <laughs> definitely. Definitely. That's awesome. Um, so yeah, that was, that was fascinating. Um, so Alex, what is your crypto pe- pet peeve? Oh, oh man. I, I think, I think it's a, I think my crypto pet peeve is, um, okay. The first thing that came to mind was, um, was, was this attachment to, 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 to monetary incentives, the human psyche that impacts us through greed and the association of money with everything associated with crypto. You know, I still love building really just great products and companies myself. Um, and I would be remiss not to obviously highlight, you know, the reason why I'm in this space, uh, fun- foundationally and fundamentally. Um, but I think that that skew associated to, as a developer, there's this incentive to build out a protocol, you know, within a much shorter time frame to, in terms of level of success, earn me, you know, a quick buck versus building sustainable companies for greater impact is a very like significant psychological issue for the industry. Um, and so it's a major pet peeve for me because I think that that has hindered our growth massively. Massively, massively, massively. So, so that I guess that's a that's a big pet peeve of mine. Yeah, just a follow up on this. Do you, do you think in terms of web, like building process in Web two and and building process in Web three, the time duration should be similar because somehow there's a perception that uh, Web three companies because of the cyclical nature, which is building like two years, three years, four years. Uh, whilst if you see some of the VC structures in Web Web two, uh, they're comfortable backing a company for seven years, ten years, maybe even more. So do you think there do you think web three products should take similar time or do you think that the urgency the industry has is kind of justified? Well, the urgency is derived from the opportunity to liquidate uh, and exit right through a token. And if that's the reason why you're building fast, then yeah, <laughs> you know, that's that's a terrible reason. Um, if the reason is because you're just a really strong team and you've been able to go to market and identify PMF very quickly, build as fast as you want. Right. So I think, I think that, I think the answer to your question is less so on what drives it or, or is more, more, it should be more focused on like what drives the speed less versus, you know, whether it should actually be that fast. Um, so, but, but yeah, I think generally, right. In order to build uh, sound products with the proper uh, uh, product market fit and people are like protocol market fit, doesn't matter. Will will customers use your product uh, that isn't driven by speculation? And you know, I talk about speculation being its own form of product market fit, but it's not sustainable. 
um, you know, as soon as demand goes down uh, and you and you then lose, you know, the supply associated to that speculation because of prices, right, and the price volatility, um, you, you no longer have PMF, right, because you essentially lose, you know, the demand. So, um, so, so, even though speculation is a form of product market fit, it needs to come in, in a more sustainable form. That more sustainable form does take time, in my opinion, um, depending on the type of product that you build. Whether it needs to actually match Web2 incumbents doesn't matter, in my opinion. But typically, historically, data points tell us that, yes, longer is more effective. That's a very fascinating answer. Um, price speculation having its own price, like product market fit. I think so that's 100% that's is, is product market fit. Yeah. Our entire industry has achieved product market fit on speculation. Liquidity has entered the space because of speculation. Maybe not Bitcoin, you know, foundationally, but all these tokens and, you know, wanting to want, you know, airdrop farming and yield farming. It's, oh, you know, access to the to these uh, short term, non-sustainable um, opportunities um, and, and sideways trading. Right. I mean, now, now now I'm just like fudding things. But, I you know, I like I said, I think one of the first things I said, you know, I'm very I'm going to be very pragmatic about, you know, the kind of state that we're in. We've sat, you know, at less than a two trillion dollars in market cap, total market cap, um, three trillion. We hit, you know, November 2021. I remember very vividly. I think it was like November 21st, 2021. Um, and, and it was a great day. And we haven't even come close. Right. I think we're at around a trillion today. It's slowly going up with the Bitcoin ETF news. But, you know, we've been at this state and it's like that's a drop in the bucket. The liquidity coming in is not net new capital inflows, right? It's, it's, uh, it's, it's very, uh, back and forth. So, um, what will drive that net positive inflow is not going to be speculation. So Alex, what was the last thing you searched on Google or ChatGPT? Let's look. Batsuki. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> Uh, yeah. Fat, so to our listeners, uh, Betty was shilling me on um, the new NFT that came out, Fatsuki, uh, yesterday. So if you like Azuki's and carbohydrates, yep, that this was is a project story. for you. Yeah, uh, that was the program. Do your own research, not financial advice, but yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Alex, question I should have asked you but didn't in, the, in this podcast. Oh, question, uh, questions around, um, uh, and I kind of showed, I kind of brought it up myself, but I, uh, either questions around Bitcoin or questions around, um, uh, adoption. I think many people give different answers to those, to those questions uh, or specifically the second question, but like, I, I've just, I've just gotten to this point now where, you know, th there, there is, there are no excuses, right? Like associated to thinking about um, increased uh, adoption, not even adoption, but sentiment, right? You go on the street, I'm in New York, you go on the street and you mention NFTs, immediate disgust, immediate negativity. You mention crypto, immediate disgust, immediate negativity, right? Like, I don't, I, whether these individuals decide to partake, right? And be and become adopters, um, we need to figure out a way to cross the chasm of sentiment before crossing the chasm of adoption, because we essentially screwed ourselves over in many different forms. But obviously with the news of last year, 
um, that are, do not pertain to us, but media has skewed um, associated to crypto and, and obviously the FTX stuff and, and, and whatnot uh, it, it puts us uh, a few feet below where we were before. Um, so we got to get back to, to level ground in terms of sentiment. And, and how do you do that? So the question of how we do that is something that I think uh, needs to be discussed more. Awesome, Alex. Um, before we conclude, how can our audience follow you um, and, and learn more about you? Um, so uh, you can follow uh, the fund, uh, Shima Capital, um, just twitter.com uh, slash Shima Capital, uh, no spaces, uh, in which we you know, will update uh, kind of our investments, our theses, etc. cetera. Uh, you can follow me uh, on Twitter as well, uh, at Linfluence. Uh, L-I-N-F-L-U-E-N-C-E. That is, uh, my last name is Lynn, as you all know, as, or as you can see. Um, but uh, yeah, so, so you know, uh, that's something that I picked up very, very early on uh, in my internet uh, time um, many years ago. Stuck with it. So Linfluence, uh, and I'm Linfluence across Telegram, um, Twitter, um, and on Farcaster, I'm just Lynn. So L-I-N. Um, but Twitter is definitely the best way to stay in touch with me and what I'm thinking about. Alex, before, before we conclude, do you have a Solana mobile phone by any chance? I do not. I've refrained from purchasing one for a number of reasons, but I, I, I am very bullish on Solana's move with the mobile phone. And this goes back to insert timestamp. But deep this in. goes back to our deep in conversation and the importance of data origination. And I think the Solana mobile phone is one of the first major steps by a network to align with that thesis. So love, love what love kind of the direction that Solana is taking by releasing that phone and what will come of it. But I do not have one personally. Again, thank you so much, Alex, for joining us. This was a very fascinating discussion. We, uh, we touched a lot of remits and this was amazing. I, I thoroughly enjoyed myself. Betty, thank you for inviting me. Uh, this was a pleasure and, uh, um, uh, and uh, yeah, this, is, this has been super fun. Thank you for having me. If you found value in this podcast and have feedback or suggestion for future topics, don't hesitate to share them in the comment section below. Whilst you're at it, don't forget to hit that like button and subscribe. It really does help with the YouTube algorithm. Furthermore, if you're interested in hearing from a specific guest, again, drop their names in the comments below or give me a shout out on, on Twitter by tagging them. It makes our job easier. Until we meet again, keep listening to Open Metaverse Podcast and keep learning. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be considered as financial advice. Any opinions provided in this podcast reflect the views of the speakers only.